guy, no guy. Wow, summertime, yes guy, no guy, with the Beach Boys in the background. I love that. Nice effect. Whose idea was that? I think yours. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, drivers and passengers, time now for the Beach Boy edition of Yes Guy, No Guy. Go ahead, sir. So, for this one, we're trying to keep it as light as possible, looking at the future, but we're in the summer now, so we're going to try and stick to that. Thank you. So, the first one, <laughs> will John Gibbons finish the season as Blue Jays manager? Are you serious, guy? No, guy. I wow. mean, come on. That, that's why I love the, the Ross Atkins, all due respect, answer. I mean, obviously, you know, here's here's your lineup. Oh, sorry, guy, it's got a few holes in it and, and a couple of question marks that aren't going to turn out. Yeah, this has got, you're going to not survive the season written all over it. Of course he does not survive. But is there a reason to even fire him at this point? Well, yeah, because you don't, it's sort of a diversion tactic, right? I mean, the team is not doing well. And by the way, when you watch Blue Jay highlights, isn't it exciting to watch the ball hit the glove and then drop? How many times do we have to watch that? Dude, squeeze the ball with the glove. Catch the ball. They're working on the fundamentals, Jim. Oh, Catching the ball. Fabulous. And and are we being charged fundamental prices? No, I don't think so. Not at all, wow. unless it's a Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, was the deal for Kawhi Leonard a bigger surprise than the Leafs acquiring John Tavares? Oh, um, he, he, that's, a, that's an interesting way you phrased that. Uh, I'm going to say uh, no guy. I, I, really? Uh, yeah, wait a minute. I'm just I'm going, going back now to remember how that... The JT thing happened. It was a uh, Sunday morning, obviously July 1st, and uh, we got a on our in-house email system at about 11.59 or thereabouts. The JT sniff started to come out, and, and so, yeah, I'm going to say uh, yes, guy. Yes, guy. All right. Will the Blue Jays bring up Vladdy Jr.? Oh, that's and we have uh, who do we have on? Let me Gregor Greg Chisholm. Chisholm. Yeah, he's going to tell us. I, I would say I, I hope so, guy. Yes, guy. But but it's probably not going to happen. Okay, and this is one that I'm actually really interested in. Is Marcus Stroman a part of the Blue Jays' core next season? Okay, um, I'm going to say no, guy. Uh, and, and this is the problem I have. You know, when we talk about the rebuild, hasn't it already started? And, and aren't a couple of the pieces that were part of the rebuild already starting to fall apart? Right, but he's also a young, controllable pitcher who's a top-of-the-rotation type guy when healthy. Okay, so is that the game we're playing? We just have young, controllable people, and when they're uncontrollable, they leave. Well, Isn't that what the Expos turned into? It's like a farm system for everybody else. Yeah, and then to your point, that might be the reason why or why not we see Vladdy Jr., because if that's the way they're looking, then they're probably going to hold them out if they're worried about... Well, controlling and, and you know everybody's going to like the Vladdy story. I already like it, but we need more than that. That just that can't be the only reason that we're intrigued with this. By the way, the poll question on my Twitter account at Jim Taddy: You are excited for the Jays' rebuild? Question mark. Fifty-five percent yes guy, forty-five percent no guy. Eighty-six votes, so plenty of opportunity for you to cast your ballot. So our next one is: Will Johnny Manziel be a CFL lifer? Oh. I'm going to say yes, guy. Wow. And here's why. That stuff I said with Matthew about uh, how you track what he does. You'll be able to track the jersey sales for obvious reasons. You'll be able to track the number of uh, seats sold in Montreal. You'll be able to track the ESPN numbers. You'll be able to track the TSN numbers. And you will see the difference. 
he's not going to have that effect in the NFL. So he, this is a for a business opportunity for him. He's never really going to have this again. He could go on to success in the NFL. Do you see him being dominant? I don't. Uh, you know, was Doug Flutie successful in the NFL? Absolutely. Uh, was he uh, dominant? He was good, uh, but he wasn't uh, Tom Brady, right? So this is an interesting business opportunity for him. So I'm going to say yes, guy, to that. Okay, I like that. And then I got a leaf one for you. With all the new, with John Tavares being a part of the squad now, I was thinking, will Matthews lead the Maple Leafs in scoring this season? Hmm. Well, I'm going to say no, guy, just because it, it would be better if he didn't. Does that make any sense? Yeah, contractually it does. Well, <laughs> and this is the, we always get to that, right? We always have to do this, this managing of somebody else's money. I don't know how exciting that is. I don't if, really worry about it. Nylander's an interesting scenario. In what sense? Well, if he wants a long term, maybe they're not ready to give him one. Which is weird because other than the Edmonton Oilers with Nugent Hopkins, Taylor Hall, um, and Eberle, have you really seen long term deals no, hurt teams? I, hate, I, I haven't. Hate, I, hurt them? Yeah, like David Pasternak is 6.6 is fantastic. Being able to lock down a guy like Duncan Keith early on, 5.2. Yeah, but they'd already won a cup when they did that, right? That's true. I, I, I firmly believe that you have to have won something before you start the, lining up the Brinks truck, just because Edmonton's a good example where they started paying people uh, that were in entry level contracts when they didn't have to. And where did that go? Um, if if I'm running the Leafs and I'm going to sign Nylander, it's going to be on a bridge contract. And but what happens if he breaks out, Marner breaks out, and well, then, then then he still walk into more money. But you can't. You might not be able to afford that. Well, then you have to trade him. I mean that that is that's the road they're on though. At some point they have to make those Chicago Blackhawk like decisions and and decide who the core is and and let the I guess periphery players who are going to be pretty good. You have to let them go. But yep. that's what your farm system's for. That You have to be drafting the replacements. And if you were to take the three, Matthews, Marner, Nylander, is there one player you feel like is more so due for a breakout? And not not to say that they haven't broke out, but to be that kind of out of nowhere, you know, completely has a big season, 100 points or something like that. 100 points, my goodness. I, I think they've all sort of established who they are. In my world, I have Nylander not being on the Leafs four years from now. Interesting. I have him moving somewhere else for a defenseman. Where's he going? No idea. Oh, TSN Hockey Insider Jim Taddy. I, I just don't, I, you know, they, I think they have enough parts there for with JT and, and Austin and and uh, Marner. I mean, how many of these guys do you need when, and I, I don't want to be, I don't want to rush to judgment on the de- defense because there's there's parts there. Uh, there's the, the top end is, is uh, a bit of a void at this point, but that doesn't mean it couldn't happen internally. But the question I would ask you is, are you willing to suffer with that for a year or two while it develops? Yeah, I don't think, I you, think you have to. I know, but don't you want your forwards and your defensemen to be on the same page? Yeah, and to your point, I mean, ultimately, if William Nylander is your scoring winger who's at this point a 20-goal scorer in the NHL, that's a very easy commodity to find in the NHL. It's... And the Maple Leafs have had trouble finding a top-pairing defenseman. And I don't really think, outside of Morgan Riley, who I think at best is a number two, they don't really have one of those. So if that's well, the player you move... And there's no, I mean, not every team has the, the stud number one, but I would go back to the Boston series. And it, Nylander will be a great star no matter where he plays. If it's here, fine. If it's somewhere else, fine. He is a great NHL player. Don't get me wrong. But in a playoff series, when people exploit things or go after your weakness, 
you have to have certain people. It's a chemistry thing, right? You, you can't have all the same players. And I think if you go back to that Boston series, you would see that the right side of the Leafs, people just deal with the defense on the right side. Wasn't it all the way up? Yeah, it is weaker, and it's smaller, and it gets beaten up a lot more than their left side. And they're also now, like to your point, Losing JVR, you're losing some more on that side, like on the left side. And the, sure, power play too, but the JT yeah. could could fill in a lot of that. Sure, but that's up the middle. And to your point, when guys yeah. are streaking past you and dominating the corners where your center's not going to be, at some point you you got to be stronger somewhere else. And if you're getting beaten coming down the ice in your own zone and then your defense aren't good enough, yeah, you're going to struggle. And that's what they did have to deal with. I mean, now, I'm not putting all that on Nylander, but you need a certain chemistry on that right side up front and on the blue line to deal with some of that. Yeah, and, and that's why, you know what, if that you make a great point. If there's one of the forwards that I would see that would be expendable for the right piece, not expendable for no reason, I think the Maple Leafs love having him. And we had Kyle Dubas on after they'd signed John Tavares, and he said, we're going to sign all of our players. We know what we're doing, all three sure, we want to have here. But. Of course it's up to them. It's a great debate point, though. And and, and maybe you find that, that winger or, or two. I don't know if it's always one. Maybe there's that, that winger with physical presence or that digs a little more on, on another line, and maybe you find a defenseman like that, and, and maybe you don't have to go that route. But... You know, that, it's, it's an easy thing to say, to, to say, well, trade this guy for a number one defenseman. Well, first of all, find the number one defenseman who's up for trade and then ask yourself why he's available. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And then that's probably going to be the biggest acquisition for the Maple Leafs because right now they're an offensive juggernaut. They have a very good goaltender, and they almost seem primed to do something special, and all the money's making sense, like we were just talking about salary-wise. They're not dinged right now with Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, and they're not having to pay them 10 or 11 or whatever it's going to be per year. So it almost seems like their clock is running out to have the flexibility that they want to be able to contend. Yeah, I don't know why you'd give up the flexibility earlier than it's going to disappear anyway. So I think you play that out, and I think everybody understands, and I'm going to say this again, there are multiple cups with this franchise on the way. And at some point, they are going to have six guys making a lot of money and, and other people filling in the blanks. That's the nature. That's the evolution of where this thing goes. No argument that way. Well, speaking of cups, I have a yes guy, no guy about cups. But these ones include ice cream. Oh. Should our producer, Sean Levine, oh. enter an ice cream eating contest to win a year's supply of free ice cream? Oh, those eating contests. I mean, that's just gross. But yes, guy. <laughs> yes, guy. <laughs> now, do you think he wins? Oh, without a doubt, guy. Without I've, a doubt, I, guy. I have uh, broken bread with this man, and uh, he's uh, the vacuum cleaner. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's like, guy, what was that? Do you know what it tasted like? Because it went down pretty fast. I got. Thank you for letting me be a part of a yes guy, no guy. It's my first it's official yes guy. Yeah, I know. It's, it's at least you're going to have ripped off my yes guy, no guy for an absolute uh, for an, an actual conference name in a sound war battle. It really was my idea, so I apologize. Operators for are that. standing by. Legal advice will come your way. Uh, by the way, can I throw a couple at you? We've got a couple of seconds, right? Sure. Okay, so yes guy, no guy. You can't wait for the Leafs training camp to open. Oh yes, guy. I cannot. I'm so excited to see this roster. I'm so excited to see, you know, number 91 with the Maple Leafs. I just. And by the way, it was a big gesture on my part to let him use, to, for me to sign off on the usage usage of JT. 
I mean, I've had it longer, but it's okay. You can take it. Yeah, just... I, yes guy, no guy. I draw the line at, but JT is okay. Yeah, the pajamas made it okay. You have to... The poor kid was dying for this, so... Pajamas? It's, yeah, you didn't see when he no, posted the picture? <laughs> there was a line there. I'm not going to use it. So, for, I just... I'm, I, what's cool with the Maple Leafs is this whole idea that we're going to see Marlowe play alongside Matthews. We're going to see Tavares play alongside Marner. And because of that, I think Marner is actually going to have an... Like an explosion of a season because he reminds me a lot of Barzell. Doesn't have the same shot, but he's got that creativity, that skill, that ability to get the puck and move. And I think him and Tavares are going to be absolutely ecstatic, like just electrifying to watch. It's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, it's the whole city has been in this weird buzz as of late. And it started with John Tavares and then acquiring Kawhi Leonard. And we have a championship soccer team that does something special. It's it's a different place to be in Toronto than it was even five years ago. Absolutely. Oh, by the way, on the Twitter account, um, at Vichy1978, didn't Edmonton trade a scoring winger for a D? Didn't work out too well. Yeah, they got fleeced. I mean, if, Taylor Hall and, and Adam Larson, that's not, a, that's not the trade I'm suggesting. There must have been a discount there. I don't, on which I, side? I, I, because I somebody overpaid and, 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 and I don't know if I would refer to Edmonton Oilers trades as, as sort of... The line in the sand. Yeah, that was. It's funny that you mentioned that trade because looking back on history, like Peter Shirelli is going to be the gentleman that traded both first and second overall picks in the same draft. That's right. And, and what did what did he get for either one? Not much because when he traded Tyler Sagan, his big piece that he was acquiring. Uh, oh man, I can't even remember. I was thinking of Dougie Hamilton, but he came across with the Maple Leafs trade. Yeah, that was a Leaf full paw. Oh, I will check that out for you and get back to you on that one. Oh, boy. Yeah, the the, uh, the trade memory banks are a little slim. Uh, one more before we break. Um, yes guy, no guy. Vladdy Guerrero on the Jays tomorrow. No guy. Oh, really? I don't see Vladimir Guerrero Jr. coming up with the, Maple, with the Blue Jays at all this season. I just think looking at this team's thought process and the way that they look at their star players, they look at star players as almost as a burden because contractually they're going to hurt you in the future because of the salary cap that the Blue Jays have put on top of themselves. So, Self-imposed. Exactly. Well, that's fair. And I think what they're going to do is they're going to hold out. They're not going to let them come up this season. And their excuse is going to be it's a bad team. You want them to start fresh, start in a new year. And that's going to give them an extra year to hopefully take them from 24 to 25 when they actually have to pay them. Okay. I don't agree with that, but that's what they're going to do, and, and I don't think there's any way to argue it. Lease Busters will get you out of your car lease today. It's as easy as pie, a piece of cake. Avoid penalties and early termination fees. Visit LeaseBusters.com. Coming up next, we'll deal with the PGA Championship going on right now. You can watch it on TSN. Ryan Ballinger, the owner of GolfNewsNet.com, is next. You are listening to Toronto Today, TSN 1050, TSN1050.ca, the TSN and iHeartRadio apps. Toronto Today, TSN 1050. Jim Taddy with you until 1. Then it's the Scott MacArthur Show with Andy McNamara hosting today and all week because uh, Scotty is off. People with holidays. What a burn. Uh, Joe, our producer, Joe Narsa, what is the, uh, give us the background on that trade. So on July 4th, 2013, after Tyler Sagan was kind of sat out in the playoffs because he was apparently not in his room and missed a couple of spot checks. Oh, no. Boston traded Tyler Sagan along with Rich Peverly and Ryan Button to the Dallas Stars in exchange for, get ready for this package, Louis Erickson, Riley Smith, Matt Frazier, and Joe Morrow. And as of July 4th, 2017, four years after, they officially had nothing left from that Sagan trade. 
And this is the same general manager that traded Taylor Hall for Adam Larson. And both went first and second overall in that draft. Well, not too many people get to say that and still have a job. But nonetheless, <laughs> we push on. Uh, Going to deal with some golf now. And let's go to the leaderboard, the PGA Championship. You can watch it on TSN on the weekend. You can listen to it right here on TSN 1050. Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, the defending champ, Stuart Sink, all have the lead at 3-under. Uh, Fowler's through 14, Thomas through 11, and Sink through 9. Tiger is through 10 and sits at 1 over. And uh, let's find the top Canadian. Where is Adam Hadwin? He was around. There he is. He's at 1 over through 13. So this is going on, by the way, at the uh, Belle Reve course. And it's in St. Louis. And uh, this last time they played here was 1992. Nick Price won this with a minus 6. Uh, which probably uh, would be the score after the first round today. Uh, let's bring in our golf expert, Ryan Bellingy, owner of GolfNews.net. Ryan, welcome. How are you today, sir? I'm um, great. Thanks for having me on again. Um, our pleasure. I, I just, you know, when I was reading that score, the minus six, uh, and we had this issue, I guess, with the Glen Abbey course for the RBC Canadian Open, and I guess a lot of courses have this issue with technology. I mean, you go back to 1992; those are different golf clubs. Uh, how is it that these courses maintain their integrity with all this technology? Because it really shouldn't be the case. It's really hard to do. Uh, th- this golf course is about 400 yards longer than the last time we saw it in 1992. But technology has more than passed it by in the intervening years. So you're playing a 7,300-yard golf course, which compared to recent major hosts is about three or 400 yards short. Uh, so these guys can take advantage of it pretty easily. And the biggest offense that the, the PGA of America or the other major uh, presenting bodies can come up with is tightening fairways, deeping rough, putting pins in really uncomfortable places, very close to edges, uh, three and four and five paces from edges. And that's really the best way they have to control scoring. But this week, with the rain that uh, fell Monday and Tuesday, and just the difficulty that Bell Reeves had the last couple of summers with their greens, these, these greens are very receptive. Uh, these guys can score pretty well if they, they hit good shots. And, and so far, a number of them are scoring pretty well. Uh, as they like to say, horses for courses. So the way this is laid out, who does that favor in your mind? I think the longer hitters have to have a tremendous advantage because they can hit the ball high and far off the tee, and then they can hit the ball equally high with their second shots and not have to worry about holding greens. Um, They can kind of just fire at pins, especially with shorter irons. That doesn't mean to say that guys who are a little bit shorter don't also receive that same advantage. They're coming in with more difficult clubs to hold these greens, but because they're soft, they'll still be able to do so. But so far, at least among the guys at the top, we've seen a lot of guys that are a little bit longer than average, and it just so happens also the second best player in the world is, is right up there right now. This is the way you described it. I mean, it's almost the exact opposite of the British Open in terms of conditions and and how you would play it, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, what Carnoustie was basically browned out, burnt out going into the championship, then greened up a little bit over the course of the week with a little bit of rain. Uh, it's the exact opposite here. They're hoping to dry it out over the course of four days and at least get it, the green speed a little bit faster. They have them slower on purpose because they can't really stress the greens too much with the bent grass in the summer they've had there in St. Louis. So it's been difficult for them to really ramp up the speed and get it to where they would normally like for this championship. So that's a little bit of adjustment for these guys as well as putting on American-style greens that are maybe closer to what you would see in a typical PGA Tour event or even a little bit slower than what they're used to seeing in a major championship these days. Uh, these guys always seem to go in, um, I guess, cycles. And, and last year, Justin Thomas uh, won this thing and went on, had a pretty good playoff, won, won one of the tournaments in the playoffs. Uh, who's trending that way this year for you? 
it's really interesting because the Firestone tournament that preceded this has kind of indicated where we're going to see a winner come from. Most of them have finished, been in that event, first of all, and a lot of the guys have been in the top 15 of the world. So you obviously have to look at Dustin Johnson and, and uh, Justin Thomas as the one and two players in the world right now who both have recent wins. So those guys seem to be trending in a good direction toward a second major each. I really like Tommy Fleetwood, too. He has played so well pretty much everywhere he has played around the world for the last two years. He's getting closer in major championships. And I think this could be a very good week for him. I would have said Tony Finau before this morning, but uh, he blew up out the gate. So maybe that probably wasn't the best prediction. But he's had a tremendous year as well. He was the only guy to be in the top ten in the first three majors of the year. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's going to be his week, um, given the first nine holes that he played. So I, I think you have to look at the top of the world ranking. Right now, we're going to see some quality players, and we've got a lot of them who are way better than the guys underneath them. So I think we can expect to see someone in the top 20 in the world ranking win this thing. I'd, I'd be interested in the long shot. I mean, these are the best golfers in the world. Anybody's capable, right? If you got into this tournament, I mean, you, you pretty much have a chance. Unless you're a PGA of America club professional, then you've probably got long odds at best to even make the cut. Um, the one guy who has played this championship extremely well the last five years is Jason Day, who really doesn't typically set up very well for this golf course, uh, given the way that he doesn't gain a whole lot of strokes in terms of his approach play, but he loves the PGA of America setup. Uh, he kind of flies under the radar here, given his talent level, given he's won a couple of times this year. Wouldn't call him a long shot by any stretch of the imagination, but I've seen him at 25 and 30 and 33 to 1 in different places. So people are disrespecting his ability, and uh, I think that might be at their peril. Uh, give us your thoughts on Tiger. He sits at 1 over through 11 holes today. I mean, is, is it uh, on him to make a statement in this event? I don't know that he has to make a statement for any particular reason. I mean, other than th- that him winning a 15th major after what he's been through would mean probably the greatest golf comeback story this side of Ben Hogan. But I-, I think it is important for him to continue to play well if he wants a Ryder Cup spot. I-, I think that's kind of written in the stars at this point that he's going to be on the Ryder Cup team. But it's always positive to have momentum moving forward. And he's about to enter a part of the schedule which is really going to test his health. Uh, he's going to play a lot of golf between – the, the Open Championship and the end of the FedEx Cup playoffs and then the Ryder Cup, basically eight times in 11 weeks. And, and that's a lot for anybody, but certainly for a guy who's been through so many back surgeries, four in the last few years as he's been, uh, it'll be a real test of where he is health-wise and how much stamina he has left in the tank. How would you rate his season? I mean, it, it's sort of a, a, it is a major success story in that he's, he's very competitive and has sniffed around the leaderboard. And certainly the British Open, where he had the lead for seconds, uh, got everybody's interest. But, I mean, this is, this is a major step in a comeback trail, isn't it? Yeah, I think we have to look at it from a long game perspective. Just, just thinking back to maybe November when he said, all right, I'm going to come back and play my Hero World Challenge event, and then said, okay, well, I feel well enough to go play on the PGA Tour. I'm going to give that a try. I think most people would have said, hey, he got through four rounds and didn't fall on a crumpled heap at the end. That's great. That's progress. And then he showed in March, well, I can almost win. And then the the expectations were ratcheted up. And I think that some people probably figured that was maybe a fleeting moment. And then it became a little bit more consistent. And then all of a sudden he held the lead alone for an hour at the British Open for uh, a Sunday. So I think that the expectations have continued to go up from his fans, but also for him. I think he probably didn't really have any concept of how far he could go with this at the start of the year. And now we're about to get a glimpse of how far he can go with this playing a traditional schedule, playing the same schedule the top 50 players in the world play at this time of year. And if he can hold up against that, then I think that's a huge step forward for his his health and his long-term prospect. 
in terms of how he's played, how does how does what you see now compare with? And I don't want to go back to the great years, but but those winning years, the year he won five tournaments, where everybody sort of crapped on him because they said, well, he always wins there, which I always had a big problem with. But that guy compared to this guy, how would that match up? I mean, age, obviously, age four back surgeries and it just natural progression of life. Uh, he doesn't practice as much. He's got kids who are kind of in that the funnest stage they're going to be before they want to be on their own. So he's very invested in that. Uh, he's got other stuff that he does. He runs his foundation. He's got course design work, uh, that, that a portfolio that's growing there, too. So he's got other interests, I think, as opposed to maybe even five years ago and certainly 18 years ago when he played his best golf and when he was totally locked in on the sport. That all said, I think he plays more of a defensive brand of golf than ever. He used to do that in major championships and be successful, but you can't do that now. That, that's not the way majors are played. Guys come out the gate going for a high lead, you know, a lead, going, trying to go low, trying to establish something instead of building their way into the tournament like he did and Jack Nicholas before him. So I think he's kind of run up against his style versus the modern style, and it's put some pressure on his game. But overall, he's looked really good. I mean, his iron play has been fantastic. His short game has generally looked good. His putting has been weaker. Uh, I mean, there was a period there in the 2000s when we would bet the human race on him making a 12-footer, yeah. and, it, and it would go down. Now I, I don't think anyone would make that wager. So uh, his driving has always been kind of lackluster. It's still kind of lackluster. It's still pretty long, but it's not as long as Dustin Johnson or, or the guys he play, is playing with the, for the first two days, Rory McIlroy and, and Justin Thomas. So he's in a different position in life. He's not the lead dog anymore, and that's a little bit different for someone who's been used to being the, the guy who sets the tone and is threatening his entire career. Yeah, that visual of him when he was at his best, when he stepped on the green, I mean, the, the confidence just oozed out of him. You knew that putt was going to drop. That was something, wasn't it? Yeah, everyone everyone in that line of sight, whether you're watching on TV or you're in the gallery or you're standing on the green playing with them, you knew it was over. You, you knew what was going to happen. The outcome was predetermined. You didn't know how it was going to get there, but you knew what the outcome was. And now that's in doubt. And, and that's been in doubt for years now, but... It does make Tiger, I think, a more compelling character, too, because you don't know if it's going to happen. You don't know if it's going to come back, even if for a fleeting moment. I think that's why people were so enamored with him for that 60 to 90 minutes of the British Open thing. And Well, maybe, maybe that guy's still in there, even for a couple of days, even for a little bit. Um, and people want that glimpse one more time, at least. Uh, PGA Championship, admittedly, of the four majors, is number four. Is there any concern about that? I don't know that there is. I mean, I think the PGA of America kind of accepts it is what it is. Moving to May will give it a little bit of a different profile that starts next year. So they'll be the second major. That opens up some venues for them. They can do some different things with the championship that maybe they've been able to do in August when people are kind of taking their mind away from golf and starting to put it into college and American football, uh, whether they're trying to put it into the, the races of baseball and all that stuff. And now they, they can move into May. They can be a little bit different of a profile. They still have the best field of the year of the four majors, and it baffles my mind that they have not figured out a way to market that to the general sporting public. They have the top 100 in the field pretty much every year at the PGA Championship. That is not any other major championship, and somehow people don't know that. That surprises people every every time they play it. So I, I think if they could find out a they can find a better way to market the depth of field and really market this as the most difficult major to win given the competition. I think they could have a character there, but they've never really invested in that. They've always seemed willing to kind of bring themselves down to the level that, yes, we are fourth of four. I mean, their, their tagline now for this championship is, this is major, almost to remind you that it counts for something. And uh, I kind of think that that flies in the face of the history of the championship, which is, I mean, it's 100 years old. It's one of the oldest golf tournaments in the world. 
and uh, it just seems to kind of not acknowledge its own history and its own death. Ryan, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Ryan Ballinger, owner of GolfNews.com, uh, GolfNewsNet.com. Sorry about that. Um, I love conversations. You may have noticed most of the work I do, I, I love to have somebody to talk to just because they'll say something which will open the door. And so uh, what opened the door in that conversation for me was you knew it was going to happen. Tiger Woods on the green. Think of that visual. He would walk on the green, and it was like he owned it. It's like he designed it, uh, whether it be at the Masters. These are the, like any golf course in his prime when he walked on the green. Okay, how is he going to drop this one? Think of that. Your favorite sporting moments where you knew because you saw the body language, because you, I guess, bought into the particular athlete because they delivered in that fashion so many times before. When I think of the Leafs in the early 90s, I think to the look on Doug Gilmore's face, the close-up and the face-off dot, the intensity that poured out of his eyes, and the Leafs were down a goal, you knew. You didn't know how, but you knew the puck was going to go in the net. And how many times did it? Every time, pretty well. I mean, this was the guy. Wendell would deliver a hit. You knew that was going to reverberate right through the team. Doug Gilmore would have that look on his face. And somehow, you remember that goal against St. Louis, that classic little dipsy doodle behind the net? As soon as he went behind the net, you didn't know how it was going to go in, but you knew it was going to go in. I'd be interested in, in, you know, some other versions of that. I'm trying to think of other guys uh, over the years where you just knew that that was going to happen. Certainly Ricky Ray with the Argos, you you know that when he's playing, somehow, even though he's not going to run with the ball, somehow he's going to find his receiver. Joe, who is it for you? Tom Brady, last minutes of the game, whether when he's down or tied, if he has the ball in under two minutes, yeah. once he gets the ball, he brings the huddle, you see his like eyes lock in, and they're scoring. And you can't stop it unless you're the Eagles in the Super Bowl. So too bad, Tommy. But yeah. most often than not, sure. And and to your point, Martin Brodeur was very similar as well. The save, yes, yep. And you could see like his positioning, and you, he cut his blades a little sharper when he would, you know, pivot, and when he would stand in front of the faceoff, you could see he looked like he was with the last minute in the game. You are not scoring on Martin Brodeur, and it's that's I think to your point and to Ryan's point, it doesn't feel the same with Tiger Woods anymore. And that's something that's been hurting him, especially on the green. And that's always a sad day when you realize that can't happen. I'm not saying it, it won't happen ever again, but it's not going to happen with the predictability that it did in the past. And those are the, the moments where, you know, whether you like golf or not, whether you like football or not, and what I'm saying is the periphery fan, the person who doesn't really watch is suddenly drawn in because everybody understands how great this player is. Uh, we were talking about Gretzky earlier, just to tie it around in a circle. Uh, so 30 years ago today, gets traded from Edmonton to the L.A. Kings, and uh, he's crying as he's saying goodbye in Edmonton because his heart was broken. His heart was fully invested in the Edmonton Oilers, the city of Edmonton, and somebody pulled him aside and says, this is going to happen, it has to happen, and I'm sure the line was, you're going to go on to greatness in another city. The great one going on to greatness. Uh, having said that, 
that doesn't make it easier for your heart to understand you are there, you have to leave, you have to say goodbye. It's never going to be the same that way. But you understood he was going to do better things elsewhere. You couldn't have predicted uh, it would result in the in the kings and the high stick against the leaves. You couldn't have understood it would really result in San Jose and Anaheim and, and you know California being a, a power in the NHL because that was just an absurd thought at the time. Do we want to go back? We want to go back 30 years today. Can we do that? Here is Gretz with the emotional goodbye in Edmonton. I promise mess I wouldn't do this. But um, as I said, there comes a time when, when All right, we'll fade out of that. Joe, for whatever reason, is laughing. And again, I, I tell you, go back to the time. We're all watching that on live television, cut-ins and regular programming. We're watching that happen. And today, if that happened, you'd watch it on your wristwatch, your phone. The thing, the event would follow you. You'd get an alert that this was going to happen. Wherever you were, whatever you were doing, you could still, you could multitask and take the thing in. Back then, you searched it out. It, it, it sort of followed you because it was on national television, but you had to sort of you had to sit down and watch it. You had to be at home to watch it. There was no other way to watch it. Uh, so it, it it penetrated. It, it made a a big dent in your life because this was a, a national, actually an international icon who was being told he had to leave Canada. Records, points, and all, everything he did on the ice aside, and maybe included. Is Gretzky going to L.A. kind of the defining moment of Wayne Gretzky? Because I think it's the defining moment of the NHL. It's it's the the moment that all of their expansion plans were legitimized to or raised to another level. And look what's happened since then. I mean, he's really the he's really responsible for saving several franchises, not just saving them, making them viable, making them part of the league power structure. Um, I don't know that anybody else could have done that. In fact, I do know that nobody else could have done that. And so sometimes you look back on these things that are gut-wrenching and heartbreaking, and as tough as they are in the individual, it almost had to happen because the door it opens is just phenomenal. Coming up next, we'll talk with Gregor Chisholm, MLB.com Blue Jays reporter. You are listening to Toronto Today with Jim Taddy, TSN 1050, TSN1050.ca, and the TSN and iHeartRadio apps. Toronto Today, TSN 1050. Forgot to do this earlier. My apologies. The Golf Insider was brought to you by Subaru. Summer nights are made for Subaru at lease rates from 0.5% at your local Ontario Subaru dealer. Subaru. Confidence in motion. Let's talk baseball. Gregor Chisholm is here from MLB.com, our Blue Jay reporter there. Uh, Gregor, welcome. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, Our pleasure. So uh, take us through uh, what the Jays will have to deal with in regards to Vladdy. What are they looking at? Well, I think the Vladdy situation, I mean, obviously that's kind of the most compelling storyline uh, around this team right now, and he's not even obviously on the 25-man roster, but it's more compelling what's happening in Buffalo than what's happening in Toronto right now. And, uh, you know, I think the situation with Vladdy is, is, really hasn't changed despite how well he's played this year. I mean, it's pretty simple. I don't think we're going to see him up uh, this year. I, I think they're going to keep him down in Buffalo for the remainder of this year, and I think they're going to keep him down in Buffalo at the very start of next year as well. Um, you know, a lot of Blue Jays fans probably don't want to hear that, but the fact of the matter is, if you bring him up this September, 
you only have him for six years after that. Uh, whereas if you bring him up in May next year, you get him for the rest of that season and then six more years on top of that. So you're essentially stealing an extra year of control and you get him for seven years. And that's, that's the harsh reality of the business. It's not necessarily always who deserves the promotion at the time when you have a special player like this uh, that comes around not very often. Uh, you're trying to manipulate the service time so that you can ha- you can have them under control for as long as possible. And it doesn't really matter what Vladdy does in, in Buffalo right now. Uh, it, it matters in terms of fan interest and, and people monitoring him. Uh, but I think he could, he could homer in probably 15 straight games and it wouldn't change the outlook for him. I think, uh, you know, the beginning of May is, is when his time is going to come. And until then, uh, he's just going to have, have to bide his time. And there, there are some things he can still work on in the meantime. Obviously, he's got a pretty advanced approach to the plate. Uh, there are some defensive things he can still work on. Uh, but for the most for the most part, this guy's just biding his time until uh, you know that service clock allows him to come up here. In, in terms of the rest of the prospects, which is pretty well where we're headed with with the way the team is operating now, uh, you know, this is. I, I think I got an email the other day that said they were they were maybe third best in the business. How do you rate what what else yeah. they have? Yeah, I mean, I, I, they are. They're surging in terms of the overall, uh, you know, talent that they do have. The, the one thing I do question is, you know, there's, the reason why they're ranked so high is because of guys like Blatty, because of guys like Bo Bichette. Uh, those guys aren't too far away, obviously, from from coming up to the big leagues, and so that system is going to drop down again in terms of rankings once you get that next wave of talent up here. That's inevitable, but there is some there is some depth behind that. You know, guys like Kevin Smith have really uh, taken a step forward this year. Uh, the lower levels of the minors are certainly more stocked than they used to be. Uh, but what's really appealing about this system right now is the guys who aren't too far away. Uh, you know, Guerrero, uh, Bichette, a, a guy like Sean Reed Foley is is someone who I would I would like to see the Jays bring up here uh, before the end of the year. You know, it seems at this point pretty debatable as to whether or not they're going to do that. I, I think they're taking a similar approach with Reed Foley as, as what they did with Ryan Barucki last year. Ryan Barucki was, uh, you know, mentioned as a potential September call-up a year ago. The Jays decided to keep him down in the minor leagues and, and, and kind of keep his development, uh, you know, on, on the standard path. They might do the same with Reed Foley, but personally, I'd like to see him uh, come up a little bit later on this season. He's, he's been on a really nice run at Buffalo. Uh, he's really taken a big step forward this year. And uh, you're not worried about service time with guys like that. You're only worried about service time with a guy like Vladimir Guerrero, who you know once he comes up, he's not going back. Uh, you can't say the same about a guy like Sean Reed Foley. So I think it would it would do a, a lot of good for him uh, to come up in September and make a start or two for this team and just get a feel for uh, the big leagues, and then he would be in the mix for a potential rotation spot uh, next year, at the very least be that first line of defense, uh, that if someone goes down with an injury early next season, he would be the guy. So uh, I think some of those ones are the ones you would look at. Danny Jansen is another one who will come up um, you know, at some point later this year. Uh, they really need to start, you know, getting him working with the pitching staff and you know, an, an ability for him to break in as well and get a little bit comfortable before, uh, you know, assuming he takes one of those catcher spots next year. So there's going to be some of those those second tier uh, prospects who are pretty good who, who should make their, an appearance at some point this year, uh, but the top guys uh, certainly are going to have to bide their time a little bit longer. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but that second layer that you're talking about, if the overall franchise uh, farm system is, is rated at third, that mm-hmm. second layer, where would that come in? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, I think they're a little bit more middle of the pack in terms of what they have overall. Once you get the graduation of guys like Bichette and Guerrero, uh, they are going to drop down. But, uh, you know, what's going to be interesting is, is to follow the guys' progress, like Nate Pearson. He's another top prospect that they have. He's had a bit of a, a, a tough year this year with injuries. Um, but that second wave is definitely coming. I mean, you see it down more. Uh, and the levels of, of Lansing and Dunedin uh, than you do at, at, at AA right now. 
but you know that that wave is is there. Uh, I think that what really kind of turns this into next year will be more of the traditional rebuild. I, I think you're going to see a lot more of the young guys. I mean, that's the thing about this season. In a lot of ways, it's basically become a lost year because you know there's there's so much talk about the rebuild. Well, the, the rebuild is happening, but all the guys aren't here yet, and so that's kind of I think hard for a lot of fans to take. It's one thing to watch a bad team when when you've got some youth there and you can follow their progress. It's another thing to watch a bad team like fans are watching right now with this Blue Jays team where you can take a look at that 25-man roster. There might be three or four guys at most who are probably going to be on this team two years from now. I mean, that's just the harsh reality of the situation. Uh, you got guys like Barucki and, and Loris Gurriel who are going to be part of the future. It remains to be seen if Teoscar Hernandez is is going to be able to play well enough defensively to hold down an outfield spot long term. Uh, but outside of those guys, you really don't have too many people that are a, a big part of the future. And uh, next year is going to be that year where the results might be pretty similar that you see on the field. Uh, but at the very least, for fans, it should be a little bit more interesting because uh, you'll have some younger guys that you'll be paying a little bit more attention to uh, their ceiling and what they might become as opposed to right now. You're you're seeing a lot of veteran players who are what they are right now and. Uh, I mean, at this point, the Jays are really just trying to get through the season. Gregor, do you see a lot of activity with the Jays in terms of trades going into the, the final deadline at the end of this month? Yeah, I think they're going to be a little bit more active than normal. I mean, obviously, the, the, the big elephant in the room is, is Josh Donaldson and whether or not you can get something for him. I mean, he's really starting to run out of time here pretty quickly. He's supposed to start sprinting this week, uh, but he was supposed to start sprinting last week, too, and that didn't happen. So. Uh, obviously, I mean, this, when he went on the DL, uh, you know, I still remember that, that day in Detroit, I was down there. He was adamant. He was coming back in 10 days and said, you know, the only reason he was even going on the DL was to make sure the Blue, Jay- Blue Jays didn't have to play shorthanded. And, uh, obviously that didn't happen. I mean, that was, that was more than two months ago now at this point in time. And, uh, if he can get back onto the field for a week and some other teams can take a look, look at him, obviously he's the type of impact bat that, would still generate a lot of interest. It's just going to be a matter of whether or not he can get onto the field. And then beyond that, there's some other guys that they'll probably look at moving too. Like if, if there's a contender that comes calling uh, for uh, Marco Estrada, uh, he'd obviously be a guy they'd be willing to move as well, uh, maybe to a lesser extent. A guy like Tyler Clippard, it wouldn't expect much of a turn, return for that. Uh, but this will be more of an active uh, August than most, uh, especially because the Jays still had some unfinished business uh, when the July 31st deadline wrapped up. Uh, no, honestly, not a big fan of this story, but it seems inevitable. What happens with Gibby? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking for a long time he's not going to be back next year. I mean, that seems like pretty much a foregone conclusion. You can kind of sense that in and around the team. Um, I really think that they should leave it up to him as to whether or not he wants to finish out this year. Um, if if he wants to finish it out, then I think he should be given that opportunity. Switching him out for an interim manager like DeMarlo Hale at this point doesn't accomplish anything. Uh, if you're doing it as a bit of a courtesy so that he doesn't have to do the march day after day when uh, everybody knows he's not coming back next year, then if you're doing that as a bit of a courtesy to him, then I would think that's understandable. But it just seems hard to believe for me uh, that he would be back next year. I mean, this, this organization really is turning the page on a new chapter here. Uh, and they're about to, to go into basically a full-blown uh, rebuild at this point in time. And, and I'm just not so sure that uh, John Gibbons would even be all that interested in that. I mean, you're talking about uh, be at least a couple years away from really putting a competitive team back in the field. Uh, Gibbons has been doing this a very long time. I would be surprised if he wants to tough that out. Uh, so I, w- I would be really surprised if he's back next year. Um, and, I, and I think over the next six weeks or so, whether or not he finishes that out, 
uh, really ultimately should be a conversation between Gibbons and, and Atkins about about how they want to handle uh, the next couple of months because I think everyone around the situation right now is basically determined it's a foregone conclusion that, that the Jays are going to do something else and go in a bit of a d- different direction uh, this offseason. Greg, I really appreciate you stopping by. Thank you very much. No problem. Anytime. Gregor Chisholm, MLB.com Blue Jays reporter. Coming up next, the Scott MacArthur Show with Andy McNamara. Andy, how are you today, sir? I'm doing well, Jim. How are you? Good. Oh, you've got the, the Browns golf shirt on. The Fabulous. comeback season starts tonight in the preseason. How many days a year do you wear that thing? Well, it's short sleeve, so only warm weather, so what, two months? <laughs> if it's a warm autumn, a crisp autumn day, I might chance it. I did chat with you the other day and, and mentioned that this is really, I mean, look at the smile on yeah. your face. This is really, this for, is a, for a Browns fan, this is the Super Bowl, isn't it? Training camp. All the hope. we got hard knocks. There's hype. You can't get worse than 0-16. And, and, and by each exhibition game, it gets dimmer and dimmer, and, and the peak is the home opener or the season opener, and then yeah. see you next year. And that's, and that's it. But being a Lions fan, Jim, you know the 0-16 feeling, right? <laughs> Have you recovered? Can you recover this? <laughs> oh, Joe is just so mean-spirited. He wow. said, you can get worse than 0-16. You can get moved to Baltimore. Oh, Isn't that cruel? This is the guy who laughed at Gretzky crying. Yeah. It's a sick I promised Mess I wouldn't do this. Okay, I promised Mess I would do this. Thanks for stopping by. <laughs> the Scotty MacArthur Show is next.